Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. If you need some new earbuds or headphones, go to tweakedaudio.com. And enter the promo code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. When you enter that promo code, you get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked Audio, these are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. Welcome to the Other People Show. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the podcast, the Other People Podcast Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I'm very excited about today's program. I have Sonia Chung here. Her novel, The Loved Ones, is out there now from Relegation Books. It was the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. And uh, I'm getting around to airing her episode now. Uh, She came through town on tour. She came over. We sat down. We talked. It was a a delightful experience. For me, at least. I don't know about her. (laughs) Uh, I hope you guys are hanging in there out there. Everything going uh, okay? You uh, enjoying dystopia? You settling in? Don't settle in too much. Got to resist the urge to uh, ignore and fall into some sort of numb complacency. That's my feeling. So I'm wrapping up work on my novel. Perfect timing, by the way. What a perfect time to send a a novel out into the marketplace. Um, Or maybe it is. I don't know. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing a revision. I'm I'm finishing a major rewrite of the book. Starting to feel like it's coming together. I think. Or at least I feel like I made uh, great strides from draft one, you know, from this big first draft to the big second draft. And really to even say first and second draft is kind of a misnomer because I've rewritten this thing so many fucking times. This is probably like the 600th draft. But it's a major rewrite that I'm uh, about to complete that uh, I've undertaken after receiving notes from uh, an editor that I'm working with. So I'm just trying to take this thing through every pace. Feels good. Doing my due diligence. Hopefully it's working. Holidays are coming up. 
So if you're, uh, you know, if you're traveling for the Thanksgiving holiday, it always makes me happy to think of this podcast, uh, traveling with people as they head across the country to, uh, visit their families, wherever that might, you know, wherever the, you might be headed, sit down at the table, day drink, scream at each other about the election, experience a rupture, storm out of the house crying. It's a magical time. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, but rather than dwell on such things, I want to get straight to the interview. I want to share with you this conversation I had with Sonia Chung. Uh, the Loved Ones is a terrific novel. It's great to spotlight it in the book club. And I hope you guys enjoy this one. Here she is, folks. This is Sonia Chung, and her novel, one more time, is called The Loved Ones. I would say all told almost 20 years with an interlude in Seattle for seven years. Oh, okay. But, I mean, you've collectively lived in... New York for 20 years. For almost 20 years. And then there was like, okay. And are you a lifer? Are you there for life now? I think so. Well, you never know. You never know. Okay. But did you go there with literary uh, ambitions? Was that why you went? I went for college originally. Uh, Then I went to Seattle actually for literary ambitions. I went to graduate school in Seattle. That's a good spot to be literary. It was actually. Where'd you go to graduate school? University of Washington. Okay. I I haven't heard uh, from too many people who've done their program. Was it good? It was good for me. It was um, small. It was kind of an intimate program. Um, it was very reading oriented. And I feel like that's mostly what I got out of it. That's <laughs> good though. Yeah. I mean, because I, I feel like a lot of times, you know, especially, you know, ambitious uh, younger writers can get ahead of themselves in those programs where it's like, I just want an agent. And it's like, you haven't really read that much. Yeah, no, it was nothing like that. I actually, I taught at a program more like that. That was more at Columbia. Um, that was more, it was in New York. It's kind of competitive, bigger program. The program I did was, was not at all like that. It was very cozy. Um, we were all very supportive. It was very reading oriented. Um, and actually, you know, it's been a long time, but um, about half of us keep in touch. Oh, really? Which, yeah. How many people were in the program, like in your year? Was it like 15 or? It was like 11. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, and then being at Columbia, you mentioned that it's competitive. Like I'm always fascinated with these, uh, like Ivy league, uh, schools, especially MFA stuff. 
people who go there, like they're really ambitious. They're in New York. They're in an Ivy League. Mm-hmm. They they have uh, grand plans. Yeah, a certain kind of person I think wants to go to Columbia because it's in New York, and also the faculty are very sort of um, you know famous. Yeah. Sort of the New Yorker crowd uh, that teaches there. So, uh, and it's so big too. So you don't have to be as communal and supportive. You can be sort of more competitive. A mercenary. Yeah. Did you do an MFA program? I did out here at USC. Mm. Uh, you know, and it was, it was big. I, like there's, I talked to uh, a, a writer recently on the program who did the program with me. There's a whole bunch of controversy surrounding the program that I did, um, the way it was operating, but oh it was good for me. I never had a problem with it <coughs> because I was, uh, I was just there to work. And I needed like an umbrella to hide under Mm -hmm. to do the work. Mm -hmm. And it was also a community. I have friends, like one of my friends uh, from graduate school that I met literally on day one of graduate school is coming over uh, in just a bit to hang out. So, yeah, I mean, so, you know, I met some friends and I hit out and I wrote my novel. It's that time. And, um, so you wrote your first novel while in graduate school. That was my thesis. Yeah. Impressive. Well, I mean, you know. You haven't read it. <laughs> I didn't write anything. Don't go overboard. I, don't go overboard. That I remember or I'm really particularly proud of yeah. from that time. I mean, I don't know. I think I kind of like romanticized just having that. Um, that was a really free period. You know, I was, I was in my 20s, single, graduate school, and I was really focused, like yeah. kind of uh, on that almost exclusively. Yeah. I mean, you don't realize how long... And what a privilege two years just to do that right. is until yes. it's over. It's sort of glorious. Yeah. So that was nice. And then, uh, you know, when you are teaching, uh, you know, like you go through one of those programs and it's sort of nurturing and it's good for you. And then you wind up teaching in one where things are maybe a bit more cutthroat. Mm-hmm. Uh, how was that? Like, it was, to- yeah, it was really different. I, I, I'm, I feel lucky that I've had two different MFA program experiences like that. I, I was a student in one kind and then a teacher in a totally different kind. Couldn't you dial it back? Couldn't you be like, Hey, I know you guys are all very talented and ambitious, but like we can be more nurturing. Well, I I, I sort of was, I think I ended up being that professor. And I think a lot of the students who felt kind of left behind or sort of, they didn't have that aggressive personality. They weren't knocking on the doors of the really high profile faculty. They weren't um, elbowing to get agents. They really were there to just, they wanted to explore and work on their craft and they needed some encouragement. I think I, I, they gravitated towards me cause I, I was, and I, I really felt that that was, that's, I guess my pedagogy to use, you know, a fancy word, but that, um, to get better as a writer, you just have to write more. You have to keep writing. And if you're totally demoralized and discouraged, you won't do that. So you yeah. don't get better. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, you know, I've heard, uh, I forget who it is. I'm going to be paraphrasing somebody, some famous writer who said that they, you know, writers, young writers don't need encouragement. They need to be discouraged. We need, you know, Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. It was like that. <laughs> I think, I think, I, yeah. yeah. And so I, I mean, I get it and it's a snarky thing to say and there's some truth in it. But as a teacher, I've found myself thinking, you know what? this might be a person right at the dawn of their career, or this person might be developing and maybe something will break through. And if I, uh, dump all over this person's work or I'm super critical, like I could damage that. Mm -hmm. Like I always felt unnerved by it, you Mm -hmm. know, and I don't want to be a complete pushover, but I also don't want to act like I know. 
Right. I don't know. You never know because, and I, I think I always have to remember, I was not necessarily the student that my professors would have thought, oh, she's the one. She's got it. No, and so right. who am I to be presumptuous about any other student? The, yeah. the, the, the fiction that I submitted in my application packet for the MFA that I ultimately went to uh, was terrible. Right. <laughs> like, you know, like I look back on it and I'm like, oh, and that's why I didn't get into Iowa. You want to think about what was in that packet. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, but I mean, I sat there and I, I worked like really hard and, mm-hmm. um, you know, like I had the itch to do it and a person can improve. One would hope. Yeah. And then there are all those other qualities, just that other, you know, kind of intangible quality of just wanting to do it and being willing to persist and keep at it and, I always think that one of the qualities that I have, um, if I wasn't the most talented student, I actually, I have a very high tolerance for uncertainty. Oh, I thought you were going to say pain, but same thing. (laughs) Same thing. Yeah. (laughs) I I guess I've sort of developed it. Um, and it's something that I think about when I look at my own students, I think the students that I, that really have no tolerance for uncertainty, you can kind of see it. You just, no matter how talented they are, you just have a feeling like, you just need that. You, you need to be have to have that. You have, well, these, these are people who should probably be on a more linear path. Exactly. You know, and in, in writing in the arts, it's just not, they need real jobs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, and the, you know, it's funny too, because I was reading something recently about Harvard. God, I can't remember what it was. I was reading to see there's, you know, something somewhere. And the person was talking about their classmates and you know, what, what the experience was like of arriving on campus as a freshman and meeting all these young people, uh, all of whom, or most of whom had like really specific plans at age 18, at age 18 and had clear ideas of what they wanted to do. And, you know, really, really smart people who went to probably, you know, most of whom went to really good high schools and, you know, all this stuff. And it, uh, it sort of knocked me back a little bit. I'm just like, whenever I think about myself at that age, I'm like, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> None. Mm-hmm. Like, did you have an idea? I had no idea. You had no idea. I didn't even think I would be a writer. I didn't, I studied, I was a history major in college. I, you know, I came from a very like immigrant professional oriented family. Like, Are you first generation? Something. First generation born. We we would say second generation, but yeah, first generation born in the U.S. My yeah. parents were immigrants from mm-hmm. Korea. Okay. Mm-hmm. And why did they come over? Um, opportunity, education. My mother was studying nursing. My father was in medical school. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they weren't like fleeing something. No, okay. not, not for their lives. Okay. Um, That's not speaking. dramatic. Where's the story? <laughs> <laughs> were they wanted by the, uh, authorities. Uh, okay. And so you, where, where were you raised? Uh, in suburban Maryland outside of DC. Okay. Which figures into your book. Indeed. And how was that? Did you like growing up there? Um, it's funny. I don't have a lot of attachment to it. Part of it is that I went to boarding school for high school. So you sort of develop your attachment to your childhood place, I think, as an adolescent and teenager, maybe. We also didn't have a particularly happy family life. So, um, but, uh, so it's interesting to revisit it for the novel because it's it's close but it's far away as well. It felt internal and external. Did you go, go back, back there and to like uh, do some research or to just kind of like wander the old neighborhood? Um, well, my family's still there. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah, uh, and so part of the novel takes place in actual DC in the city, 
um, which again is familiar, but we didn't grow up in the city. So it, it was that sort of interesting, familiar, but not familiar thing. I did a lot of my research for the city part just on Google, right? right? But then went uh, to explore the neighborhoods in person afterwards, after the book was done and was, was glad to find that it was, I was going to say just to realize, just to realize how badly I'd screwed it up. (laughs) (laughs) So I could pick apart my book after the fact. Um, so you, you are raised in, what is it? Bethesda? Where are you? Um, so we started out in, um, Laurel, Maryland, which is Prince George's County, which is, which I mentioned, which is significant because Prince George's County, at least back then, and maybe still now, was a predominantly African-American county, low-income, low-middle-income. We started out there, and then um, after, when I was six or seven, we moved to Montgomery County, which is the more affluent, more white area. Your dad's a doctor. He does a doctor. So he's making a good living, right? Right. He was building his business. However, his practice remained in Prince George's County, so... All of his patients were African-American and he went to work in Prince George's County every day and we would go kind of with him to the hospital, the office sometimes, but then we would, we were in school and we were living in Montgomery County. Then my family moved back to Prince George's County, um, when I was in high school and, uh, stayed there for another 10 years, but I was off to boarding school by then. Yeah. So that's an, but that's an, it sounds like an interesting education, like mm-hmm. culturally and otherwise. I mean, exactly. first of all, you're living the immigrant experience and I've had other writers who have been in that situation on this show before. And one of the consistent threads is that like, you know, I think for first generation or second generation kids, um, there's a lot of, uh, maybe pressure is not the right word, but it's like, you got to make the best of this. Like, mm-hmm. the, you know, we're here, we want to get you to school. We want to get you integrated into the next level, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that? Yes and no. I would say my, my family was typical in the sense that yes, education was, um, was everything. That was why they sent me to boarding school. They, they just wanted that whole Harvard, Yale, Princeton thing. Um, the thing that was sort of not typical was that my parents were totally uninvolved with our studies and our habits. Like I, my parents never told us to study. Oh, really? Or to behave this way, Let's, or don't co- do that. Korean or, parents are sort of notorious for being like, yeah, really like uh, sending them to after-school programs and summer school and my, all this stuff. My daughter goes to uh, predominantly. I think her class is predominantly Korean American, and uh, a lot of these kids go to this after-school math program. Mm-hmm. What's it called? Is there a name for it? Oh, I don't maybe know. it's just LA. Right. But then my wife and I are like, fuck, are we, right. what, are we doing this wrong? <laughs> well, poor kids these days, they just have to, they're like scheduled yeah. all day long. Yeah. yeah so, um, I feel kind of lucky somehow. I don't know. I think my, my mother in particular has, um, a kind of wonderful laybackness where she just wasn't like in our faces about stuff. Well, you know, I was listening to an interview with Katie Couric. I mean, this is a random interlude, but I was listening to, I think Katie Couric on uh, Mark Maron's podcast. And I don't know anything about her, but mm-hmm. I thought I'll listen to her. And like, I didn't realize like, oh, her sister who has now passed away, uh, tragically of cancer was a, um, she was like a state Senator. She was a politician of promise, like a rising star politician in Virginia in the same class as Tim Kaine. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think he, after she passed away or after she had to give up her seat because she got sick, like he, um, took over or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like she, she wanted him to kind of fill her spot, hmm. something like that. But the point is that all of these kids 
in the Kirk family wound up being like mega successful. Like not one of them was a fuck up. Like, and not one of them was even like mediocre, you know? And she said something about how her parents were really, um, pretty much hands off. It was kind of like, figure it out for yourself. And I kind of like that a, mm-hmm. because it allows me to be lazy and feel justified in doing so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but B, I think there's also something to like, you know what, this helicopter parenting and this overscheduling and this constant, like meticulous micromanaging of our children enough already. Yeah. Like I, it just, there's going to be a backlash soon. Don't you think? Cause it's, it's hitting a tipping point. It's it, just, I'll start it right now. It seems unsustainable. It does. And it also seems like, like, yes, you need to, uh, oversee your child's education to a certain extent, you know, and yes, you need to be involved at that level, but there's a, there's a point at which it becomes obsessive. And I think you also most importantly just need to love your kid and like hang out with your kid and have like a personal relationship with your kid. Absolutely. Can't be all business. Right. (laughs) You know, but sometimes I think it gets that way. Yeah. It's all, I guess it's just fear, right? If you don't go to the right college, you won't get the right job. You won't be, and it's always about stability, right? In the end, it's always the, the thing about parents is just, you just don't want your kids to be in danger in any way or not able to take care of themselves in some way. So I know, but is it to be guided by fear? I mean, I know a little bit of that is healthy, but it's like, if that predominates, I worry, you know, like, is that the, if that's the motivating factor, the central motivating factor, we're driven by fear. Somehow that's not going to translate well eventually. Yeah. I try to be that person. I don't have kids and, but I have a lot of friends who do. And it's, it's always like, well, easy for you to say, but I might as well say it since I feel like I can, you know, like relax, they're going to be okay. You love them. They know you love them. That's really, you know, it's half the battle. Yeah. So you mentioned that you had like kind of an unhappy childhood, like it wasn't the most happy household. No. So just like pressure so much. No, my, my parents had a terrible marriage. Oh, that'll do it. Um, we were, you know, again, I feel like maybe a little theme here is the way we were typical and not typical for an immigrant family. So we looked like the model minority family. Yeah, very doctor. Much. Yeah. Yeah. We were good, good kids. We got good grades, but we just had a whole mess of stuff going on sort of, uh, underneath the surface. So it was, and that was, that's the hardest part. I think when you have a lot of, um, dysfunction going on in your family that, it's the hiding, it's the pretending, it's the seeming like everything is perfect that I think is the hardest on kids because you just never get to feel like you've um, been able to be truthful about something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's also like you become implicit in the artifice. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like you're an unwanting participant in it, you know what I mean? Even though, even though you have no intention of doing so, suddenly you're like part of the act. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, it it really came back to bite our family because, you know, what happened was uh, there are three of us, three girls and each of us, we each sort of had our big freak out, like our big, you know, it's going to come out one way or another in our adult lives. And we each had kind of a big thing, uh, like that. So what was yours? Divorce. Oh, it was. Yeah. Did you each have a divorce? Um, no, we each had different things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everyone's an individual. Exactly. All like snowflakes. We're all like snowflakes it's on this so planet. True. I mean, birth order is everything. We're my, my sisters and I, we're really different. And we, yeah. We where, even, where are you? I'm the youngest. Oh, you're the youngest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a tough legacy. I mean, it, it can happen. You know, obviously there are children of divorce who go on to have happy marriages and there are children of happy marriages who go on to get divorced. There's no rules. Right. But I do think that like, you know, like a parental 
uh, my wife and I talk about this, you know, like with kids, especially it's like, boy, parental, uh, the model that you give your kids of what a relationship is, mm-hmm. it's a heavy responsibility and it's always imperfect. You can't think about it. You can't think about that. You'll just feel like, well, I mean, I can't, I can't, you can't overdo out. it. Yeah. You can't overdo it. But I do think that it's good to be conscious of like, you know what? They are watching. Right. Right. And if I'm like, I want my, I want to behave properly and I want us to be good because if we're good, it's going to affect them in a positive way. And if we're not good, it's going to affect them in a negative way. <laughs> but so here I am again to yeah. that voice to just say, you're, you're thinking about that. You're you're already good. Okay. Just the fact that you're even aware of that. You're yeah. like, you're doing the best you can. So don't worry about it. Wow. Well, I like you. <laughs> I feel better already. Um, so you're going to fuck up. So I know. I trust me. I as know. long as you you're aware of that, I've got and... 438 episodes testifying <laughs> to how badly I fucked up in my life. <laughs> I'm building a little monument. Uh, so let's talk about boarding school. Oh, okay. Because that's always fun. It's, it's not always fun. But I mean, it's always fun <laughs> to talk about retrospectively. It. Sure. So you are in this household. Um, it's sort of uh, gloomy. And then you get to adolescence and you get sent away to boarding school. Like I would imagine not only because your parents want good opportunity for you, but also because it's like, you know what? Things aren't going great for the two of us. Maybe it's better to get her... You're so insightful. It took me <laughs> decades to realize that, yeah. you know, it was like years of just like resentment and just having this, not even knowing I'm you didn't so want to go. You didn't want to go. Well, look, I was 12. Yeah. Did oh. I want to go? Did I have any idea? I had no idea what yeah, you're it 12. was like. It was, you know, this was one of these new England prep schools where, which one like, was it? Andover. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, there were like Kennedy's and Roosevelt's and, Norman Mailer's daughter was in my class. Like this whole idea of social class and old money. And, uh, just, Did you see I the Kennedys? No Did you see Norman Mailer like on parents weekend? I might have, but I might not have even recognized Norman Mailer because yeah. that social class was so far from me. Like it, I just had no idea. Was this your first, cause you know, you're living in suburban DC or mm-hmm. essentially, right? Yeah. And you're living in a, um, lower middle-class African-American neighborhood. Is that that right? was kind of the early childhood, but then we were in more of a oh, more affluent, but then you moved of, back though. But I had, right. But I was already in boarding school. Oh, then. you were. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, but okay. So you've had experience of class difference sure. based on your two childhood mm-hmm. homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it really has to come into stark relief at boarding oh my school. Gosh. Yeah. I was thinking about this yesterday, you know, listening to a podcast as political people are talking about inequality there are two worlds. There are two countries. It's not healthy. Like the, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you know, the, the people who have that level of privilege and you get exposed to it, you're like, Oh shit. Yeah. What you're not even, Oh shit. At 12, 13, no, yeah, you don't so. even like, you can't even process it. All you know is I don't, I'm unhappy. I don't fit here. You don't really, you don't really know why you don't know the fact that you've never played lacrosse or known what the sport was <laughs> equestrian or you know? like you didn't know what ll bean bluchers were or just you didn't you didn't know that that's what was happening but later like for instance um my first year at boarding school i was in a dorm that was kind of far off campus you know you had to kind of walk a ways and i kind of had a sense that like the dorms that were on campus were more you know, it was more convenient. You got to be in the middle of things, but it wasn't until years later that I realized that most of the girls in my dorm were not white and from 
more scholarship families. It's like segregation. You know, but I, it, it wouldn't have a, kind of occurred to me at the time because it just, that way of things was just, it was just so, it was a whole class awakening. Yeah. Um, but you get a good education, get a really good education, like academically and otherwise, because yeah. you know, you can sort of be of two minds on this, you know, as wrong as inequality is, it's a reality. And if you have the opportunity to go to a school like this, it's an enormous privilege and to, I don't know, bear witness to this, to interact with such people. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like the, the education that it gives you in terms of the ways of the world, I guess is sure. what I'm trying to say mm -hmm. is really valuable. Um, but it also sets you up nicely for college. I'm sure you go, where did you go to school? Columbia. Okay. So mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, it, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. It puts you in a good position and it's sort of like things are the way they are. And if that's right. the way the game is played, then there are right, worse right. places to wind up. Right. I mean, it's an, it's an unseemly thing to complain about. Um, but it's also, it's also weird. It's a weird, I mean, maybe this is where I'll appeal to you as a parent, but it's, it's just a weird, uh, emotional time to be, to be just kind of thrown into all of that. With yeah. Like, no. And again, like I said, my parents were not involved, you know, they, they never asked, so what's it like or what's going on or what? what are you studying or who are these people? Like they just, that was it. That was it. And you were the baby. And it was the baby. You yeah. did. They'd done it. You know, you were the third child. I think sometimes the youngest child, but I was the only one that went away actually. Oh really? Yeah. The other two didn't. Mm -mm. Huh. Did you resent that? Like, why did I have to get sent away? You know what I'm saying? Or did, no. or were you like, I feel like maybe I'm special because I got, well, actually what happened was my family learned about boarding school when I was in the eighth grade and my other sisters were older. So we all applied at the same time, but it's much harder to get into these schools as an older right. student. So I was the only one who, who got in. So that's huh. shining star. <laughs> that's good. I mean, in a way it's lucky, I guess, but I'll tell you this as a parent, I can't imagine sending my kids away at 12. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, right? I'm, I'm too attached, you know, like there's, it's going to come quickly enough as it is. Yeah. But you know, if, uh, the opportunity were there, I mean, you know, there are different sets of circumstances where it could be completely palatable. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's, it's an unusual experience. I mean, there actually, um, this is the time I think when, uh, people from high school start to reconnect because of Facebook and because enough time has passed that it just doesn't feel gross. You're just not worried about that, all that stuff. Like you are who you are at this point. So a lot of my high school friends have actually been coming out to these readings, not a lot, but like people are starting. So I'm starting to like, there was someone at the reading last night that I hadn't seen in 25 years from high school. Wow. Um, so we do, we sort of say that was a weird experience, but I guess it was special. You know, it's all of that. Yeah. But you don't feel like you don't go back for like alumni stuff. You don't feel like that sort of attachment to it. I, I haven't, but there are a group of people in New York who are gathering regularly. So that's been sort of fun to, and you, join and you join that. I've gone a couple of times. Okay. Yeah. It, was there any like of the, I mean, what kind of uh, hijinks? Was there a lot of like, uh, drugs? Yeah. Sex. Like, that kind of stuff going <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah. And were you, you were aware of it? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, Did you go crazy at all? Like in boarding school? I didn't. You didn't. No, you were I was a good kid. Yeah, I was probably too good. I was probably too good, too straight for too long. I think that's that's a that's a theme of my life a little bit. <laughs> right. And finally you freaked out at like that's exactly right. How old were you when you freaked out? Thirty. Thirty. I freaked out at 30. It's a great age to freak out. Yeah. 
but you know, it really actually is. Well, it was. I no, I agree. It actually is Because, like, you know, and I, I feel like I freaked out when I was 18 and 19. Mm-hmm. And what did that look like? What? Just just partying a lot, yeah. squandering my educational opportunities. Uh, and, like, really, it actually started more 17 to 20, mm-hmm. you know, because it started when I was in high school. And uh, I just didn't even want to go to college. And I had great grades, great mm-hmm. essay. I had everything. And I didn't even, I, like, I barely applied anywhere. I didn't even try to go to an Ivy league school. I did my applications in ink by hand. You were an underachiever, but I seemed boring. Well, I mean, I had, I wasn't an underachiever until I hit like my middle of my junior year. So, but, but I look back on it with regret. Cause it's like, Oh my God, like, why didn't I, why didn't, you know, I didn't even try mm-hmm. to do anything with it. And I guess, you know, it, everything happens for a reason, question mark, maybe. But, uh, but youth is wasted on the young. A lot of stuff is wasted on. Yeah. So I guess, <laughs> I guess my point is that it's sort of nice in a way to have your shit together, take your education seriously, maximize those opportunities, and then, you know, get into your twenties, have some professional experiences, hit the age of 30 and just freak the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I feel, I feel much better now. You did a wonderful I'll, job. I'll let you talk to my parents. Yeah, right. that'll, be, that'll be great. <laughs> Well, everyone's got to have, you know, no one's perfect and everyone's got to have a, a bit of a freak out in life or more than one freak out, you yeah. know, yeah. it happens. And it has to be, I mean, freak out is one way of putting it. I think it's, it's a big failure. You got to have a big, because for me, divorce was a big failure. You know, like I never imagined that that in a million years, I never imagined that that would happen in my life. It was, just, it, was it like, I'm going to do this better than my parents did it? I'm going to, you know what I'm saying? Like I learned, mm. I learned how not to do it. And so I know, and now I'm going to go do it. Right. Maybe I never really thought about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I think it's more just, I just thought of myself as a very, I don't know, like monogamy forever just seemed, I took, kind of took it for granted. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And it was, it was awful for our families and it was, it was just like, you know, but no you one was, you didn't have, you didn't you know, have kids. Exactly. That makes yeah. it, that makes it less uh, tricky. Right. Right. Absolutely. So you got that going and for you. We didn't you. have money either. So that was well, easy. There you go. This is perfect. <laughs> it's clean as a whistle. Um, but it's also painful. It's tough, you know, and it's a kind of grief Yeah. when a relationship ends. I don't care if it's a marriage or if it's like a, any kind of long-term monogamous relationship, even a short term, but you know, people can really grieve that, uh, mm-hmm. the loss of a partner, um, of like a month or whatever, you know, it's heartbreak. Mm-hmm. And that can take a while to heal, you know, and the scars are always there. Like I had very few girlfriends or, you know, I didn't date a lot. I was kind of a nerd, I guess. I don't know what it was, but I was also terrified of casually being in relationships with people that I knew I wasn't in love with. Hmm. I, I, cause you would, cause you, the, the sort of connecting and disconnecting, you just anticipated that. I, and I just, I couldn't do it. It had to be real. Mm -hmm. And if, and I wasn't emotionally ready, I was too young. And so I was like, I'm not going to pretend I never really said it that explicitly to myself, but I just couldn't do it because I wasn't feeling it. And I was also terrified that if I hooked up with somebody and got them pregnant, I would be like locked in. Mm -hmm. That was like a big fear of mine. Really? Yeah. I don't know why, you know, it was always like. Oh God. Cause then if they get pregnant, I'm just going to, did like your dad tell you or no, his hand but I was you raised, know? I was raised Catholic. Well, there you know. go. So there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, you know, all that guilt and like this kind of earnest sense of, uh, you know, do the right thing or whatever was, I think bestowed upon me and not in a bad way, mm-hmm. but, uh, right. 
I do wish, like, I do wish, you know, it would have been nicer if I could have relaxed a little bit and just like had more fun. Right. But that also gets tricky. I think like people are always like that, like, oh, just go have some fun, date around. Right. It's like, how many people are that? Yeah. And not everybody can do that. Can do that. Yeah. I had that same, I mean, when I had my freak out when I was 30, I wanted to do more of that. I kind of, I kind of tried. Now's the time. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of did a little bit of it. I'm glad I I did a little bit of it, but I I couldn't really totally let loose in that way. It just wasn't natural. Right. You've got to be temperamentally suited to such things and you've got to be at a certain, you know, I don't know, even, I mean, 30, you can still do it. But I mean, I think like twenties seem like that's when that happens, right? But I have to say, I mean, I don't know if this is freakish or normal, but my, my way of thinking about that or feeling about all of that, like just kind of a more loose way of existing in the world and relationships. And I feel like I'm, I keep, I keep getting more and more liberal as I get older. Like it feels more natural to me to just be more relaxed about pretty much everything. That's good. Yeah. The older I get, you just don't give a shit. I just, I just don't give a shit and I just don't, I don't get the point of the rules and I just, it just, Yeah. Well, that's nice though. And I think like, um, like I, they say never ask a lady her age, like, but you're beyond the age of 30. Correct. We can say that (laughs) diplomatically. Um, and I'm 41 and I think, you know, I have a few friends my age who are single out there and I do think you get to a certain point and it's got to get more honest. Yeah, exactly. One would hope. Yeah. Where you just like whatever, like here I am, you know, like yeah, like what what are people really like? How do we really exist in the world? You know, like I, I really, um, I like what Dan Savage says about sort of monogamish, right? Because isn't that just more real? Isn't that kind of more just how people are? This like, I don't know, this like intense attachment to very very strict lifelong monogamy just seems like a I don't know some kind of weird recipe for. I don't know what, well, it can be, I, you know, I feel like I'm, I come from a long line of people who mate for life and like relatively happily. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, maybe it's in my DNA. I hope, I mean, and That's you know, good. I hope that it works out. Yes. I mean, you know, like yeah. it's always a work in progress and you can't let it atrophy. You know, you have to be working at it. But, um, I think it's just, especially once you make the decision to have kids or once I made the decision to have kids, it was like, you know, now I really you know, I really want to commit to this. Mm-hmm. Not, that I, not that I didn't before, yeah. but like, this is the, my life project. And it's like, uh, to me, I kind of view it as, um, service and I don't want to make it sound too, um, submissive or, uh, self-sacrificing, but you know, uh, it's it just, I just mean to say that it's about more than just me and mm-hmm. my needs and my happiness. Mm-hmm. Like I want to, I want my life to be lived for others and to have their, you know, their needs, be maybe even more important than my own. Mm-hmm. And so that's lovely. It's, it's always, it's wonderful. I mean, it, don't you feel how you're like, you're the first generation of men to really like that really comes from a very genuine place in you. Like you're, it, it, that's a, that's a whole generational thing, right. For men to really think that way about their kids and about giving to their kids. It's like, yeah, I, I know. Mean, yeah. It, it's also, yeah. I mean, I think it's generation. I think there were some, maybe in the older generations, there were some some people who thought that way, Mm -hmm. but I think hopefully it's becoming more widespread. Like, I don't know. I just, I I guess I just take, uh, fatherhood really seriously. I just don't want to fuck it up. (laughs) (laughs) If again, just the fact that you don't want to fuck it up, you're, you're halfway there. I want to do a good job. So where were you literarily, um, 
you know, in the context of all of this, you know, we kind of talked about personal stuff and you hit this age of 30, you have a divorce. Mm -hmm. What had you done book wise and writing wise prior to that? Where did Washington fit in? Right. Right. So the chronology. So I, I went to graduate school young. I was a couple years out of college. And part of why I did that was because I just didn't, I didn't really know what a writer was or even if I was supposed to be one, but I kind of thought maybe I was supposed to be one. So based on what? Based on feeling just that very kind of youthful, almost indulgent sense that I, I think I'm like a deep soul. <laughs> yeah. I have something to say. I, yeah. I think I, I think I have something to say and I know I'm good with words kind of, um, and, but I didn't know how to do that, but I did know how to go to school. So that, that was like, okay, I'll go to school, I'll apply to schools. I can do that. Um, but like I said, I, I, I really didn't write much or write well in graduate school, but I read, I started, I really started reading in graduate school. Then almost, I don't know, almost 10 years went by after graduating. Um, I was married and we were, we were sort of weirdly living this, I sort of lived my thirties in my twenties house husband, garden, dog, like you had a garden in New York. This was in Seattle. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah, I was we like, well, there a while. <laughs> garden in New York. <laughs> um, you know, our friends were generally older than us and had kids like, um, kind of did all of that. Years went by. I tried to write a little bit, um, but not very successfully. And then it wasn't until it was actually the divorce <laughs> that really, you know, it was like, fuck, I don't, you know, you just never know what's going to happen in your life. I got to, I got to get going. Like, and that's when I started writing uh, my first novel, Long See, This World. Isn't it strange though? Cause this happens a lot. I think people go through something difficult and it serves as a creative catalyst. Yep. It's a common story. Um, and you say, like you said it earlier, you know, you, sometimes you have to experience failure. It deepens a person or you experience loss, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe they're tied together. And when that happens, it really sucks but, um, gives you something to write about. Hopefully gives you more empathy, mm-hmm. you know, a sense of compassion for other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone's going through stuff. Yeah. And it also, it's, it's humility. Exactly. You know, like yeah. I don't have all my shit figured out. As I don't have tur- any of my shit figured out. <laughs> as, as it turns out, I'm a complete mess. Yeah. I think the, the great thing about the, I think the one major thing that I took out of that whole period of life, cause I used to be more of a planner, more sort of in the future, like making sure things were taken care of ahead of time, you know, and and kind of not able to be in the present as well, and thus stressed out a lot. Um, But when when something happens that you just never imagined would happen, um, and you had no control over it, and you, you really live that, like it's in your bones now, you really let go of a lot of that. You're just like, uh, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. I really don't. I don't know um, how I'm going to change. Um, I don't know any of that. So I might as well just be here and do this the best I can. And I think that's actually good when I talked about tolerance for uncertainty. Yeah, I was just going to say. I think that's a really just good like tool or quality to have as an artist. Just, you know, here I am. I'll do, I'll do the best I can now. Maybe I'll write another book. Maybe I'll get hit by a bus. I don't know. Like, <laughs> but today I'm going to work. Yeah. Today exactly. I have, I'm going to sit down and try to do it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, I think that, uh, it's a really, uh, you know, it's a cliche, but it's true. Like one day at a time, mm-hmm. really and truly, like the more you can live like that, especially when you're writing a novel, right? Yeah. You just got to 
here's the page today. Yeah. You know, but just everything. Yeah. You get too far ahead of yourself. And I'm not saying that you can't plan for the future. I think we do have to make plans. I mean, we would never be able to conduct our lives without making some plans and, you know, attending to the future in some way. But, you know, it's got to be done with a sense of limit. And, uh, I, you know, I go back to humility, like thinking that you can somehow game the future perfectly or or exert some sort of like massive control over your existence. It's a fallacy. Yeah. It's also very stressful. And I, to the degree that I feel like a relatively happy person in my life, it's, it's that it's, it's that moment, the the 30 year old freak out, um, where just the ability to kind of let, let stuff go. And so it was, it was like, it was like doing some dating or, you know, getting out and being a little bit more wild. It was taking things more slowly mm-hmm. and more one day at a time, mm-hmm. working creatively. Mm-hmm. Like, did you do anything else? Did you like get a mohawk or a tattoo? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I started smoking. Well, good for you. In my thirties. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I mentioned that just because it, it was really a time of exploring pleasure. Like, I don't think, you know, Korean immigrant family, also very um, religious upbringing. What kind of religion? Uh, so my, this is on my mother's side. My great grandfather was a Presbyterian theologian. Okay. My grandfather was um, a missionary and founded the church that we grew up in. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, I mean, they were actually pretty good. They were sort of like liberal Presbyterians. They were really involved with um, working with the poor. Like they were kind of, my great grandfather was kind of like a Martin Luther King kind of figure in Korea. He was involved in resistance to Japanese occupation there. Um, but some combination of all that stuff and just maybe the unhappy family life, just like pleasure, enjoying things. So, you know, it wasn't like I was trying to be cool by starting to smoke. It was more like someone gave me actually cigars. Someone gave me a cigar and I was like, this is really what the, I've been living a lie. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about this? Yeah. So, what about like, did you um, go clubbing? Did you do anything like that was, uh, kind of chronologically out of order, like suddenly you're going to raves or something. Did you do that stuff? No, but I kind of wish I did. And you know, it's never too late. It's never too late. Yeah. Yeah. That would be great actually. (laughs) I know. I I try to tell myself that, you know, because you don't want to be, you don't want to be like the old guy at the, at the rave, at the rave. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm never going to go to a rave, by the way, this is purely hypothetical, but there still are raves. Like, I don't, I don't even know. know that, that, that right there. Exactly. I just outed myself as so being sad. like terribly dated, yeah. but, uh, you don't want, I don't know. You don't want to be like the creepy old guy. Right. But you also, I think you don't want to be limited in terms of what you believe you can do yeah. or what fun you can have just yeah, because yeah. of whatever age you happen do to you be. Think that's, um, an American thing. Cause one thing that, so I've spent some time in France, actually spending time in France is also part of the post freak out because oh. France is a place I think that's very much, I mean, it's a huge generalization, but no, no, people the, just enjoy the simple. People just enjoy themselves more. No, I think, no, but you know, it's you know? it's they've really cultivated. You talk, you talk about pleasure, mm-hmm. like as a society, like traditional French society is is they've made it an art form. Yeah, and exactly. you go over there, it's like such a sensually, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like it's just the senses. It's yeah. beautiful. You're in Paris, yeah. and you're in like the south of France, and yeah. it's. A, the food, the fashion, like people look better and I don't know. It Pe- is part of the way of life. People look Absolutely. gorgeous smoking a cigarette. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, here's an example. I have an expat friend who lives in Paris. She had stomach cancer. Oh, um, Jesus. Healthcare system. Great. 
whole thing free. They took her stomach out. She has no stomach, literally. Like a colostomy bag? Or what do you do when you lose uh, They your... just kind of reattach your intestines to each other, and that's all you need, and you actually. Just, and you just don't eat a lot. Well, so, and she's a foodie and loves food. So we would vi we'll visit her and she'll just be eating same old stuff, pork and fried foods and drinking wine. And, and we'd say, don't you need to kind of watch what you're eating? She said, French doctor will never, ever tell you don't eat something. They just don't, they would never tell you that. Hmm. I mean, that's a big difference, right? That is a big difference. <laughs> but I was going to say, one thing I also noticed about France is the age thing. It's not like you, you're not the creepy old guy if you're... 60 at the club it, like there's much more intermingling i i felt of, of the ages. ages yeah that's so just seemed more natural how much time did you spend over there like what and what led you over there just a, a vacation um well so you know when you're in junior high you have to pick a language so i've been doing french all along and just always loved it just it's one of those things like in my ear i just just loved it um so i i studied the language all through school and then um, are you fluent I, I'm functional. Functional. I say I'm fluent. When I'm there, I can I can function. Okay. Um, and then I went once in my 20s and really loved it. But then it was um, 2012 or 13, I think, was the first time um, I was able to go there to for a teaching job. So I was there for five weeks. That was kind of the longest time I got. What to time of year? Go. Summer. In Paris. Yeah. Oh. So it's been every summer for about five, six. At weeks. the American University, or no? So Columbia the first time, uh -huh. um, and then for a couple of years I just went to write and kind of do my own book research stuff, and then last year I went with Skidmore where I teach now and taught a, taught brought students with me and and taught. God, that's a good gig. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So when you oh. really spend like a month or two months somewhere, you you don't you're not living there definitely, but you're. I lived for in Paris there. in Paris for a summer when I was young. Mm, young, was, like like twenty three, twenty four. Uh -huh. It was great. Yeah, that was so fun. I was going to write, and all I did was just have fun <laughs> and like eat baguettes and chocolate. <laughs> was, yeah, yeah, it was awesome. But it, you know, it sticks with you. Um, not to sound hokey, but it really does. You yeah. know, I really love that place, and uh, it's a very easy place to get around. Absolutely. It's an easy city. to. It's, it's, it's so beautifully laid out. And pretty small. Like I usually, it's summer, so I usually get around on a bicycle. That's yeah. The my best. my yeah. wife and I were there uh, and rode bikes all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, she crashed once, which was not good, but it was okay. She but was French fine. healthcare came to the rescue? No, it was, oh. like, it was not that kind of crash. <laughs> it was just sort of like suddenly I heard like, <laughs> you know, I turned around and she had had a, she was, it was a low speed, you know, it wasn't a high speed wipeout. But, uh, sort of funny. Like, and then I started laughing and I, I shouldn't be laughing. It was one of those things. Do you travel much less with now that you have kids or? Yeah, yeah. But we have, uh, we have dreams of being able to do it with them, Yeah, you know, but when they're really young and I know there are people who, you know, they just pack up the baby and go, yeah. but, uh, haven't been able to. And it's really fucking expensive. You know, you buy four tickets instead of two and mm -hmm. you have to make sure you have, it's like, I don't know. Cause I don't, Especially when I go there, it's nice. It's, and, you know, it's much nicer, especially now in the age of uh, Airbnb, to rent like a residence. Yeah, because absolutely. you get to you get to feel more integrated into in the a neighborhood. Into a neighborhood, yeah. it's less. And hotels are just ex ridiculous. Yeah, you know, like I think about these days back in the, uh, I don't know, earlier like the 20th century, where people would like show up. Writers would show up and just like live in a hotel. Yeah, like, can you even do that now? No, okay. I mean even the word hotel was like different like the chelsea hotel like you in new york like that's where artists would live but hotel is like a different thing now I think. yeah and, and like it really is 
like even for people who have the money, like to, to go to like a really nice hotel, you're spending like 500, 700, $1,000, $1,500 a night mm-hmm. just for a room. Yeah. Seems like Airbnb it, is great. It's like it's it's also I think as a writer it's such an adventure. You're living in someone's space, and they usually they they leave all their stuff there. And my partner he loves he really loves the part where you just like go through their drawers and really like <laughs> go through their you know so like rearrange passage. their their silverware. Like you know he really loves to just see who people are based on their stuff because you really you it's really like anthropology. Do. Totally, it's really interesting, and it's, it just adds a whole other thing to your travel experience. Yeah. That's great. And it's cheaper. So you've so. done that like multiple summers in a row. Every, right. Every summer since that. So it's been four or five summers. It really does. It really does uh, give a person to be in Paris specifically gives you a really, it's, it's hard to avoid the sense of art history when you're there. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's inspiring. I mean, it, again, I don't want to sound uh, ridiculous, but you're like, my God, like so many people going back through time yeah. have uh, been here been inspired by this place, made great art here. Like you can't escape that. Yeah. It's fun to be there. It's energizing yeah. as a writer, right? Exactly. It's, I think, you know, I, I'm over the whole thing about like, Oh, I'm such a cliche. Like, I don't, I don't care. Like I, as an American, I think Paris is, it's the exact right antidote to so much of what ails us here that it's just, it's a really great place to just go regularly. I think trying to, I have a lot of expat friends who've tried to live there and integrate there. That's a whole different uh, Exactly. Ballgame. I was just going to say, yeah. Cause I'm it's, not trying to do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, yeah, that's a, you know, because it's like, it's a wonderful place to go for five weeks at a spell in the summer. Exactly. I think if you're actually trying to live there, integrate, it's not the easiest France and Paris is not the most welcoming mm-hmm. society. Yeah, they're not, exactly. ex- they're not eager to have us, you know, right. right. Um, but, like Frenchness, Frenchness is Frenchness and you could, um, you can be married to a French person. It's still hard. So yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I, I see that, but it, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm right there with you. I think it's a good place <laughs> to go back to. And I also feel like insofar as like world capitals go, I mean, you go there and then you go to other places. You're sort of like, well, right. I know. I <laughs> it's went not to, quite as beautiful. Exactly. I went to <laughs> London for the first time and after having been to Paris several times and I just, I kind of hated it. Sorry. All you you know, Anglophiles. I hated it because it was so expensive. And Paris is actually, once you get to know it, is actually quite cheap. You can really do it um, cheaply. What part of the what part of the city do you tend to stay in? In Paris, yeah. Um, we so we found this area. It's Belleville. It's kind of the intersection of the tenth and the nineteenth. Um, and the reason why it's so great is because my partner is Chinese American, and of the two of us, he for travel, he sort of leans sort of east and south. And I toward, sort of lean north and west, you know, the, the European thing. But it's Chinatown. Belleville is Chinatown. Oh. Um, so he loves that, that, you know, you can go downstairs, you can get your croissant, or you can get your tersu bao or whatever you want. So, right. Um, that's a perfect. That sounds like a compromise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's, um, it's a cool, it's a cool place. I mean, it's making me want to go there. Yeah. Right I can now. see you've got this look in your eyes. Like, oh, well, it's just been a while. Travel. It's just been a while since yeah. I've traveled, you know, but my wife and I, it'll be 10 years next summer. Maybe we'll go. Got to figure out what to do. It'll happen. Those, I, you know, those kids will, those kids got to buy, but I mean, we're not taking the kids. <laughs> we'll dump them with my parents. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think a lot of it too, is just, you just got to buy the tickets. Just get the tickets. That's right. And then it'll all fall into then place. All, then, yeah. Then the Airbnb will be fun looking for that. And then. Yeah. So uh, what about your book? Is it, uh, did you just make it up? Is it autobiographical? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like how much of it is pulled from your life and how much of it did you just, uh, conjure? 
Um, you know, you're the first person who's asked me that, which is weird because that's like the question you always get asked. So yeah. that's kind of cool. Um, it's, it's mostly con well, you know, what's the answer? The real answer is always, you know, like it's all autobiographical, yeah. but kind of event and plot wise, you know, not, no. not so much. Okay. Um, that's what I was fishing for. Yeah. But I mean, so Hannah Lee is one of the main characters and so she's my age. So 13 in the mid eighties in suburban Maryland, that, that was kind of a, a starting point of familiarity for me with her. And how long did it take you to write this book? Um, so I wrote, so this is my second published novel, but the third novel I've written. <laughs> so there was one in the middle, um, that was three and a half years of trying and thinking it was going somewhere. Um, Ouch. I feel, yeah. yeah I, feel, I mean, I had like, I had a book that I, yeah. after my published book, I wrote a book and it was just like, no. Yeah. And it was, it was very different. It was, had a totally different cast of characters and different plot and different settings. But, you know, now, now that we're on the other side of the third one, there's a part of me that wants to say that it was all one process, right? That it was really six years to write one yeah. book. And there is a sense in which I, I, I'm the only one who knows that this book, The Loved Ones, is actually the revision of the second one in a way. But yeah, the, um, like it's all of a piece. Yeah. Even if the books are totally disparate in terms of yeah. what happens in them. Like if the second one doesn't work and then the third one does, the third one is made of the second one. Exactly. It's just, that's exactly for right. whatever reason, yep. you had to write that second one in order to get to the third one. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe that's all bullshit, but it's a healthy attitude. It's totally not. I mean, I, I feel like I'm still learning from that second one. Like there, there are things I learned that went into the third one. And there are things I learned that are, are still there for me as I'm working on. What did you learn? I guess the fourth one. Now. Give me an example. Like, just like, or is it, is it hard to articulate, you know, like, is it like weird, intuitive, right. like plotty stuff? Or is it something you learned about your writing process or one thing I would, I think, I think that I'm not, I'm never comfortable sort of diagnosing definitively, but this, that second novel, the one that, that failed, um, was, you know, the write what you know, write what you don't know thing, right? So that second novel was a lot of write what you don't know. Two main characters were male. Um, the geographies were not familiar to me. Um, there was a journalist and a politician, and these are worlds that are also not super familiar to me. So it was, it was just a lot of research and imagination. It, it's like, it sort of got away from me. I think my authorly intimacy and investment somehow dried up. And I think that that was a lesson in sort of, cause I can get excited about, I love learning things. I love being in worlds that aren't my own. I love imagining things. So I think that was a good lesson in just being aware of reining that in. Well, but yeah, you know? exactly. Cause don't you think, even if a book has a lot of conjuring in it, even if there's a lot of complete fiction, if you're as a reader reading a book and you don't feel the author in there somewhere mm -hmm. in a deep way. Right. It's hard to connect. At least it is for me. Like I'm always, I mean, I think I've said this many times on this show, but this is part of why I do this show. I love this sort of stuff, mm -hmm. you know, because it's like, where is the author in there? Who's the person behind it? Um, you know, obviously the book stands on its own and I can love a book independently, mm -hmm. but I always am sort of looking for the human being who made the book right. in the book right. somewhere. And it right. doesn't have to be explicit, right? but I want to feel that. Right. And it's, 
it's not, you know, this happened to me and this character is based on me in any um, specific concrete way. It's more like, what's your investment? What's like, what's your skin in the game? Exactly. Right. That's um, what it is. Yeah. You know, and if it's just like, oh, I just wanted to make up a, a pretty story. I guess there's a place for that, mm -hmm. but I just, it loses me as a reader. There's no, I don't feel the emotion in there or something, mm -hmm. you know? Right. Um, and you can I, tell, you can tell. Yeah. And so Hannah, the character of Hannah, like there it is, like that tethers you to the book, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, it, it I think it, uh, it, it drew me into the book. Mm -hmm. And then actually someone asked last night at the reading I did, who's the hardest character for you to write? And, um, as I thought about it, she ended up being the hardest character to write because she, she became someone that I really had to get to know. Um, and so in the last stage of revision, a lot of that was this character isn't fully developed and I need to figure out who she is, huh. which was interesting that she had become that in the process. Uh, do you, did you find that it was easy to access uh, how old she's 13? She starts at 13. Yeah. Did you yeah. find it was easy to access a character at that age? That was actually something I, that was part of the, um, recovery from the novel number two falling apart was like starting somewhere familiar, like, okay, I've been a 13 year old yeah, girl. I've done, I've done this in 1984, 19. Well, that's an exact, that's actually not exactly. Do you have age, good but, recall like from your childhood? Can you really remember stuff? I can't remember a damn no, thing. No, Well, it's like you remember, it's impressionistic. You remember things. Why are you, Why am I remembering that? But I can't remember the obvious stuff. Yeah. I can't remember the stuff that you're sort of supposed to remember. It's this weird like Rorschach thing where you just remember the interstitial things. So much is yeah. lost. Isn't it incredible? Yeah. Go through all this life, all these people, all these situations. I don't have any idea what happened. <laughs> but do you keep, do you keep a notebook? No. Joan Didion on keeping a notebook. I really believe, I really believe You've got one notebooks. right there. Yeah. Because, and you, the whole point of keeping a notebook is then looking back at it and being like, what? Yeah. Really? Cause you know, you would I have keep never a podcast. remembered it. I keep a podcast. Indeed. This is my notebook. This is your, gosh. At some point. The archive of this thing. I this is Brad. This is Brad Listy. Real, I mean, as close as anything could be. I think because it's in real time, it's messy. I mean, you know, but it's a, it's pretty true. It's as true as anything else I've done. I mean, you know, in terms of who I am. Am I allowed to ask you a question? I have a question. Of course, for you. Yeah. So this is all like for me talking like this for an hour is really, it's kind of unnatural because it's just like, it's so much externalizing. Yeah. And I feel like as a writer, for me, being a writer is sort of synonymous with being a very kind of internalized person. Yeah. So for you, how does this work? Like you're just constantly externalizing. But in and doses, you're writing a book. In doses. In doses. Like yeah. I, I'm an INFJ, but I'm a borderline ENFJ on the uh, Briggs, whatever. You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Yeah, no, that's a generate that like we are, we, no one else talk. Millennials don't Myers have any Briggs. idea what that they don't is. Do. Yeah, they don't do that. Personality yeah. type. The, the point yeah. that I'm trying to make is that I came up like, like right at the median for introvert and extrovert. Mm -hmm. So I have both sides of that going. Uh, but I, I have to um, moderate how many of these I do in a week. If I do an interview every day, um, it, I can burn out. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like I have to kind of get my energy or I'll be depleted. And plus right. I'm also balancing this with all the other uh, people in my life and needs that I have. But it's a great way for me to get outside of myself. I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's like, uh, 
it's a nice counter to the like really deep interior mm-hmm. writing work. So maybe it's yeah, maybe it is like so. I do I teach so same thing. That's my big performative thing. But I after I teach a class, I gotta go like curl up in a ball and like yeah. you know eat chocolate. And... Have a moment. I've got chocolate <laughs> right here. <laughs> Um, so, okay. So then what are you, you guess you're on tour now. Such as it is. Such as it is. Uh-huh. You're jet lagged. How many more cities you got? Are you done? You going back to New York? Um, probably have three more cities and then back to New York. And then back to New York. Yeah. Um, and are you working on anything? I am working on a couple of things. Okay. Yeah. I was, I did a little residency in September before the book came out two weeks just to, Cause I just wanted to feel like I got to work on something else really That's devotedly before having to go on the road with this but, thing. But plus it's also just like, okay, a book launch has its own weird package of stresses and expectations and hopes. It's good to just start getting on with it and doing yeah, the work. You have to know that you you're working on, you're still a writer, you know, you're not just this person who's just like standing in front of people. I'm dreading, blah, blah, blah. I'm dreading finishing this book. Really? Well, cause it's such an organizing force in my life, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't, I'm, I'm dreading that feeling of being in between projects. Is this number two? This will, if it gets published, uh-huh. like God willing, mm-hmm. then it'll be my second published novel, mm-hmm. but it's not the second book I've written. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but it's been, uh, it's funny. I like that in between. I've, I've talked about this with other writers too. Like, do you like to be in the beginning of something or in the thinking phase, or do you prefer to be really deep in. I actually, I like the beginning. I like the thinking. I like the loose, I'm that, that like, in other words, the blank page doesn't, doesn't terrify me in the way that really, really, really revising to finish something to me is the harder where you got to let it go. Well, you got, you have to, you have to like the last third of a book is like, it's the worst. Like it, it, you have, it has to work. You have to make the thing work, you know, not just, exploring characters and ideas and things. I'm thinking my next book might be, I, like, I have these ideas, like speaking of being in like the loose creative, like, you know, flighty part of it. I'm like, I want to do like a com- like a dark comedy about a cult. And I'm, then I'm like, cults aren't funny. <laughs> oh, they can definitely be funny. Don't you think? Maybe. Yeah. There's a lot of absurdity. Yeah. And culty behavior. Yeah. I love cults for some reason. Do you reason. have some experience with cults? Not, or? not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to build one. No one wants to join. Um, but you know, we'll see. I mean, it's also up in the air. It'll happen. And I, you know, I do like the kind of loose creative part, like just the act of like tossing ideas around. But, um, I also love that feeling of being like, okay, I know I've, I've I hooked it. I know what I'm doing right, right. and I can, I w- can wake up every day and know, mm-hmm. and it's, and I've found with both of my books, um, or both of the ones that I hope we'll see print mm-hmm. that I, at some point got a very clear vision of the end. And that I find extremely helpful because once you have a clear, like down to the line, you know, wow. uh-huh. and so then I know I have like a target that I'm moving towards, even if the path towards that target is sort of bendy, right? You know, you need it to be bendy. I actually see I'm different, exactly different when I, well, it depends if I'm really, really close to the end and then I see the end, that's like, oh, that's great. But if I see the end of even a section too soon, it's kind of deflating because then it just becomes like the job of getting to that to place. getting to that place. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I don't know. I, I guess I just need a target or I need to like have a sense of where I'm going, but I make up a lot on the way and then you change all sorts of stuff. Right. So it's, it's definitely a lot of improvisation, but it's, you know, with a fixed place on the horizon. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy thing we do, but a yeah. huge privilege. Like yeah. I still feel like, I mean, I never thought I would any of this. I never thought I'd finish a novel. 
I never thought I would publish a novel. I never thought I'd finish another one. I never thought I'd publish. Like it's all, it's it, it was it was cherry on top like a long time ago. So it's it's like it's wow. a good thing to remember. Yeah. Every time I bitch about it, right. Publicly on this show to thousands of people. <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm the worst about that. Um, well, I have uh, really enjoyed talking with you. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, I congratulate you. I'm Thank glad that you. we got to spotlight your book in the club, in the uh, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. And I look forward to uh, your next novel, uh, The Freakout. Is that what it's going to be called? Right, exactly. <laughs> it's about a 30-year-old woman who gets really into drugs. Starts, and starts smoking. Yeah, and going to raves. That's and... right. That's right. Well, I wish you luck, and uh, thanks for stopping by. Thanks. This is great. All right, guys. There you go. That is Sonia Chung. Isn't she wonderful? Her novel is called The Loved Ones. It's available now from Relegation Books. It is the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Sonia online at soniachung.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Chung Sonia, I believe. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, don't forget about the Nervous Breakdown Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. You can sign up for that. Uh, for 10 bucks a month, you get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. It's a great deal. It's a great way to uh, support the cause a wonderful cultural experience you can get the book you can read the book you can listen to me interview the authors on this program that's the way it works if you want to email me the address is letters at other ppl.com letters at other ppl.com don't forget about the app this podcast has its own app the free other people app get it wherever you get your apps it's free it's the best way to listen and uh, you can sign up for uh, other people premium right there within the app you can also support this show via Patre- uh, patreon patreon There's a new uh, Patreon account for other people. It's a great way to support the cause. I'm giving you options. I hope you guys have a good Thanksgiving. I'm grateful for your listenership. I'm grateful for the support that I get. I really appreciate it. There are a lot of you out there who have supported the show via Patreon over the past week since I uh, kicked that off. I want to say a special thanks to you guys. I'm going to keep thanking you. I appreciate that. I hope you guys have a, a good Thanksgiving uh, meal wherever you are. I hope you're with family and friends. If you can't be with family, I hope you're with friends. Or maybe you'll be just like blissful and alone sitting in a restaurant somewhere reading a book. That doesn't sound terrible to me. Maybe that makes me weird. Please remember that E.M. Forster lived with his mother until her death when he was 66 and that Edmund Wilson once called Robert Frost, quote, a dreadful old fraud. That's all for now. Thanks to Sonia Chung. Go get The Loved Ones. Get her book. It's terrific. The Loved Ones, available from Relegation Books. Thanks to you guys once again for listening. I'll be back next week with another conversation with another writer. i got some good ones coming up. Stay tuned. Uh... Stay sane, too. Stay active. Viva la resistance. Don't put up with any bullshit. <laughs>